There's so many outliers and so many misfits that they always get pushed back at some point. Always, every single one of them, because they reach a place where people want to be. Now, mountaintop is very lonely. Denzel Washington speaks about that. Once you get up there, you look around, you may see another mountaintop over here, but you can't see who's on it. So you want to build some people up, bring them up. Maybe they don't have that same mountain, but you look down and say, hey man, you want to take mountaintop for a while, I need a break. And that, that, that's the hard part about being obsessed with anything to chase your goals. It's very lonely sometimes. And that's why you become an outlier. So you want to make sure that you empower people around you so you're not doing that all the time in the world. Tapping with identity impact. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Identity Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Cortazzo, and with me is always my good friend, Colin Johnov. Today, we have Pittsburgh. I don't know if I want to call him a, a folklore legend, but oh, he's a we legend. have... I agree. He is a legend. We actually talk about that with him. We have former Pittsburgh Pirate, former Major League Baseball player, Michael the Fort McHenry. Just a really cool episode. He, he uh, shares so many awesome stories about growing up and playing baseball and becoming obsessed with the sport and how it has led him to so many opportunities. Uh, but first, of course, Colin, what's going on, man? How's how you been? I'm doing well. You know, I, I love this interview. I love every interview we do. But um, anytime you, you get to speak with, um, for me, uh, being a fan of his, it's always cool to meet people like that and learn kind of what makes them tick, learn about their personal life and see what brought them to where they are. And I think we do a really good job of, of deep diving into to his life and what got him to where he is today, which is what this is all about. Yeah, he's awesome. He he shares so much, you know, valuable information that I think anyone can learn from and anyone listening in, young baseball players, young athletes in general. He's a great guy to connect with and see what makes him tick because I think a lot of the stuff he shares, people will be able to relate to. There's so many real life stories that he tells and how baseball helped him through it all. It's just really cool to to be able to to do this and talk to him and and uh, you know share ideas and and just talk about different things. So, without further ado, here's our interview with Michael McHenry. I want to take a quick break in the podcast to talk about our good friends Jillian and Amber Tatino with J and A Custom Marketing. J and A Custom Marketing offers website design, website rebranding, website maintenance and optimization lead generation services, consulting, and much, much more. Their sleek designs will set your business apart from competitors, and their SEO and lead generation skills will send clients your way without months of waiting for your website to rank. Check out their website at jacustommarketing.com and make sure to follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Reach out today to start marketing your business your way. Michael, welcome to the podcast, man. What's going on? I appreciate you guys having me. I'm just hanging out in my apartment, closing a house tomorrow. So I had to do a little bit of Where's Waldo to find where I was going to do this thing to be quiet and you know, have a good conversation with you guys. That's awesome. We just moved as well. So I know the the stress of getting all that stuff done. Ooh. It's chaos, man. It's absolutely chaos. I have two kids too that are young and it's just, yeah, it was unbelievable, the the process. But here we are. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, it, it's unreal. It really is. Yeah. So quick background on how we got the fort is what we're probably going to call in this entire podcast because obviously we're, we're big Pittsburgh fans and, and uh, you're part of that, that Pittsburgh Pirates team that kind of gave us a little bit of glimmer of hope in there. But, uh, 
Yeah. First thing, man, is is uh, just the background. So we're friends with Vince Duffy, who was on here. He came on and talked. He shared a ton of awesome information. And Vince connected us to you and, and said that he did some work with you and you guys have been connected. And he's been a, a very positive mentor and influence in his life. And I was like, you have to be able to set this up because he's he's such a great guy that can probably share a ton of value uh, for what we're trying to do. So uh, here we are. So tell us first a little bit about growing up, man. I, I don't know where you're from. Give, a, give us a little wow. information, a little background here. I'm from Tennessee, Knoxville, and uh, if you know anything about college football right now, Knoxville's a hot, hot hub of football because of Tennessee, they're back. I'm not necessarily a Tennessee fan, I'm from Tennessee. So I grew up in Knoxville, uh, mom and dad, kind of median income home. My mom worked her tail off because she had a really terrible life. She was abused. She was forced to give up her firstborn, which I met later down the line in 2011, which is a crazy story. My dad... Not really much of a dad, uh, alcoholic, uh, but he's really transformed his life. He had cancer, uh, really did this 180, which is kind of remarkable. It had to be a God thing. Um, and then kind of the journey went is I was always this little dude that slid out of the womb, said, I want to play ball and let's go. Like, just just give me a ball, keep me active, and I'm fine. Very strong will, a lot of grit, and I would have pushback. You know, my mom, or my mom always said that, like, I could not be told no because I would just keep running into the wall. You know, if you ever seen Austin Powers trying to turn in the movie, it's like, <laughs> hey, hey, that was me trying to reach my goal. So, but there were some limitations. There were some problems that I had to figure out. I had two learning disabilities. I couldn't speak in front of people. I was very shy, so I'd make fun of myself. That really kind of put something in me down the line that I had to overcome. And obviously I've overcome it being on TV, doing different things, not just in the region, but nationally. So it's it's been remarkable to kind of learn that process, but it all really started for me when I met my wife in college. She's a communication major. She's good at everything. Former gymnast and uh, cheerleader. Uh, she really helped kind of break some of the barriers through and, and show me some things I never actually understood. You know, I was one of, this, one of these kids that was so naive to everything, right? But whether it was drugs, alcohol, anything else, I would just be in the room because people that I genuinely liked, you know, were there. And, oh, what are they doing? Oh, they're doing something I shouldn't. But I didn't understand that because my mom protected me from everything because of her life. So we go all the way through, you know, my entire life, I'm trying to figure out who I was, create relationships, because I never saw that. I never was able to figure that out because I was never asking the right questions. I was more like Buddy the Elf, honestly. Like I was just happy, play ball, happy, play ball. And I just kind of went through that until I really got to, to pro ball. And, you know, that journey was about 14 years. It ended in 2017. It ended on my own terms, which a lot of people can't say. It was kind of a, a long process because throughout 2017, they wanted me there as a teammate. And they wanted me there as a mentor and a leader and different things instead of actually being a player. So I played every now and then. I would go into the manager's office and tell concerns with sending youngsters. And if you know that Tampa Bay team, it has likes of Willie Dom. Uh, Willie Adonis, who you know just broke the Brewers record for four sophomore runs. He was a kid I loved, but it was a really good team. Tampa Bay is obviously really good. So it was, it was worth staying. We won the championship. I walked away. Now I'm in Pittsburgh with AT&T and the Pirates doing broadcasts and stuff. So it's been a journey. It's been fun. I've lived all over the place. Played for five teams one year in 2015. And I think it was 2018 or 19 I met this Vince Duffy. Let's go back to that. Um, and he he DM'd me. He slid in my DMs, which I thought was pretty, <laughs> pretty pretty awesome. 
And it was very genuine. And I usually don't necessarily just jump to, to certain things unless I have a connection. I, I kind of let it see if, if they'll follow back up or whatnot. Well, I was like, yeah, dude, let's meet. Purgatory tomorrow, if you have time. So we met. It's going to be 30 minutes. It'll be about three hours. Um, he had a passion to do something. I had a passion for it. That, that's honestly just give people what we didn't have. And, you know, different stories, but there's some similarities there. And I saw a kid that really had a passion for something that I wanted to help pull out the process, pull out that path and help forge him forward. And then just let him go. I'm really about empowering people and not trying to get in their way. And honestly, he's done a great job. His business is doing well. He's in a couple of schools. I'm still advising him, still being that mentor as best I can. Uh, sometimes I can be hard-headed, like I said, and we, we kind of push back with that brotherhood mentality, but that's what you need in life. You need someone that will call you out. You need someone that will push back on you because if not, you know, you're going to think you have it all right and then life's going to hit you. Yeah, for sure. Let's take a step back. So the whole way back when you're younger, was baseball your first love? Did you play a, a ton of different things? I honestly thought it was going to be Pistol Pete, man. Yeah. I'm five nine. <laughs> and I don't know if you've uh, watched NBA lately, but uh, five nine white guys are not <laughs> something you see very often. Right. Even though right. I thought I was a brother half the time. Yep. So yeah, I played, I played basketball. I loved basketball. Um, just, just the thought of being able to run up down the court. I think it was just because it was constant. Um, Cause I even liked soccer for the little time I played. They threw me a goal and I loved it. But yeah, baseball became the thing I saw and loved. And I was really good at And I think okay. when, when confidence and confidence come together, that's when you know, oh, I need to run at that because that makes you feel good, right? right. Not only made me feel good, it was something that I could kind of tie myself to. It really was molding me and creating probably an identity since you're all an identity podcast. But like, it really was creating who I was because it gave me a feel that I didn't understand. I was succeeding. School was really, really hard. I had a hard time reading. Everything uh, across the board, they were putting against me. And it was so crazy because like it didn't matter if I passed the test, it didn't matter what I was doing. They were still putting limitations on me. They're still pulling me out of class. They're still doing different things. So it's always a good student. So it was kind of my outlet. And I think I just hung on as tight as I could to it. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. Was that, like, I know you mentioned, you know, your mom dealt with some things, your dad dealt with some things was, and, and you mentioned your learning disabilities as well. Did you view sports? Like, was that, did you recognize that at, at that age that that was your outlet or did you just like it because you that's just where you felt fun and where you felt comfortable? I, I think looking back, I can say it was my outlet, but you know, during that time, it was just, that's all I thought. Of. That's all I wanted to do. I knew that school would ultimately lead me to be able to play. You know, like I just have to get through this. I need to do well enough. So mom and dad don't say anything, not really my dad, but my mom not say, Hey, you need to do this. Well, she never did. I just knew that that was the process. And the only reason I knew that is because the kids I was around, you know, little Tommy couldn't show up to practice because he didn't study for a test or, you know, they didn't do something we're supposed to. Like I remember asking my mom to start chores, you know, because I heard about it at school. Like everything that was like kind of my process growing up, I was learning at school. I was learning from kids. I was learning from teachers. I bring it back home and just, you know, literally be that persistence. Like, I guess bird that's just, pecking on that wood until eventually that tree falls over. And yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and do that. My mom said I would just wear her to pieces. And because of her background, looking back, all the trauma and everything else came from mostly males. So she could never 
tell me no. That persistence right. would usually break her down, which breaks my heart. I mean, it really does. Yeah. Because like she did something that I would say less than 0.001% ever do with the trauma she had to go through. If you can imagine how bad it was. And she gave me an incredible life, incredible opportunity with what we had. And I'm forever thankful that she turned me into a little bit of a little monster where I can be more of a parent to her now. And it's yeah. really neat. Like, and I always tell people, you know, try to empower your, your kids to be what you wish you could be plus some and just let them go. Like if you can just empower and put them in the right opportunities, let them own it. Don't dictate, don't direct, let them own it. Like when kids work with me, they do everything. Once they're 14, 15, they have a phone, they set up the, the time, they set up the place, they pay me, they do everything across the board. And honestly, they're better at technology anyways. It usually works out good that way. Yeah, I love that. One thing, one thing I want to ask too, because you, you talked about being a mentor to Vince, and then you talk about your disability and the family struggles that you had. At what point did you realize baseball was an opportunity for you to give you a better life? And did you have the mentors necessary to help you stay focused, to help you stay focused in the classroom too, to be able to give you an opportunity academically to be able to play uh, in college? So I didn't know any better. So at five, I thought I could. You know, I remember my, who I thought grandfather was, later found out that he wasn't my grandfather, um, gave me a glove. And he told me he was going to play the big leagues. Well, as soon as he said that, I believed him. I was that naive. And I, I think that's the benefit of being a kid. And I was literally a kid all the way through. So every time I've ever said I'm going to do this, it's honestly either happened or come close. And I've never changed that mentality. It's like, if I can believe it, and I can see the very end result of how I can't get there. I can always work towards it because I can say, okay, these are the barriers that I may face. Let me put up some things. This is my personal barriers that maybe I need to create some accountability and do different things. So, you know, you're talking about who was kind of part of my life. I went to tutoring in second grade through fifth grade. My mom took me, picked me up every single day from school, took me to tutoring, went back to work. She worked 65 plus hours a week. She succeeded. Eight years old, still works 25, 30 hours a week. And that was just her mentality. So that work was instilled in me. So I would go to tutoring. They put me on this computer game for about an hour and a half. And then I'd come off and do some different things. But it was just all word association because I couldn't associate words well. So I had to memorize them. I have no hooked on phonics. I hooked on phonics. did not work for me, period. Like it, I cannot sound out words, so I had to memorize them. So all that being said, that, it, that started where someone poured into me in a way. When it, when it comes to mentors, it, that happened down the line because nobody really knew what to do with me. They just said, here, go, here, go. I'd, I'd obviously had men you know, do some special things for me, but not having that dad presence that um, was more of a loving figure. He was hard, which I, I appreciate some too. I had to kind of see through that. And then I, I got a couple of my first mentors when I got to college. Do you ever get like, I know kind of a weird thing, just some kids that kids are mean sometimes and typically meaner, mean kids have, have mean parents or insecurities. Um, my dad always said one of his famous things, if, if you fall, if you find a, a jerk kid and follow him home, you'll probably find a jerk parent as well. Touché. But did you ever get picked on for anything like the disabilities that you mentioned? Was that ever a thing like growing up in your younger age? So I would always run away from the problem because that's what I was taught. So I would make fun of myself. 
So instead of allowing it to happen, I would beat them to the punch. So okay. I don't know where I learned that. It had to be really, really young, I'm guessing in kindergarten, first grade. But I knew in second grade, I had a miserable teacher. So her way to fix my problem was to give me more and to make it harder. And it just didn't work. You know, I was I was at home. My parents couldn't even figure out what, what the teacher's trying to do. Cry my eyes out, frustrated because, like I said, I was so persistent. I would sit there and I would try and try and try and try and try and try. And when I couldn't figure it out, I wouldn't know what to do. And then I would just just hammer my mom to help. And then my yeah. mom, you know, she didn't have the, the, the education maybe that most people did. So, like, she's trying her best. And it just didn't end up end up very well, but it's a great life lesson. So it's just, you know, you just learned a way to adapt in time and then figure out usually down the line, like, what was I doing? Why was I doing that? But that, that making fun of carried all the way through and really didn't allow me to be the best version of myself in the game, in college, because I was always pulling myself back. Right. I was always kind of being in that role of, I just want to be accepted. I don't want to be in the problems. I don't want to face these things. And life showed me some opportunities where I could step up and step in and, and, and be maybe more than I ever, ever had been. And those started to stack up and I honestly became a different person. I want to dive into that. And sorry for peppering you with the hard questions, but this is more unique than what we're... <laughs> this is more of a unique story, I think, than we're used to to hearing, or at least that's been told on, on our podcast, is in something you mentioned was you kind of figure it out along the way. And then you look back and say, what did I do there and what worked? Well, what advice would you give to another kid who may be experienced or is going through something that you went through back then where you just figured it out? What process or, or program or whatever advice would you give to someone like that? Um. Obsession turns average people into outliers, and discomfort is an incredible teacher. There's two things I wrote down that I wanted to say that, like, our society is built on soft and easy way down. Just play it out as your athletes. You, you, you train athletes. So, like, you guys understand that. Like, when you go to a high school football game, I remember my mentor just said this, one of the best uh, trainers, and, uh, his name's Charles Patron, been in the game for 30 years. Um, he's one of my mentors and he said, I went to high school football game recently. I couldn't believe how small the kids are. Everybody's doing sports specific speed, forgetting that there's barbells and weights, but that's pain, right? How do you build that muscle up? You break it down. And it's the same thing with us. Like we have to break down and build up and you can read the Bible. You can read self-help. You can read any psychology book. The reality of it is if you can walk through the darkness, you're going to find the greatest light. So my, my advice would say is don't stop where you get scared. Break through that wall and you'll be surprised what's on the other side. And too often kids want to stop and they're told to stop. For me, like I went through trauma over the last four or five years after I left the game, trying to figure out who I was, trying to figure out what a relationship is because I didn't understand it. So I was looking back. I was breaking down trauma, generational trauma that I didn't ask for, but my mom had a terrible life. My dad had a really, really tough life and he didn't have a father that was present. So like, that pours down in the next generation, period. So I had to look back and break those things down by honestly, like, just chiseled. And it, it was slow. It was heavy. It was hard. And there were some people around me that really, you know, gave me some good advice and kind of pushed me along and then ran away. There were some people that, you know, gave me some terrible advice and just didn't want to be a part of it. And then I had my wife, who was right there next to me, step by step, saying, just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. And... The reality of it is, that's what you have to do, is just not stop. 
Holy crap. I, can can, I know, can you awesome. repeat? <laughs> I want you to repeat the obsession quote too. That was that was awesome. The whole thing was awesome, but that the obsession one just popped out right at the beginning to me. Yeah, obsession turns average people into outliers, and you know I I believe that if you if you look across the board, that Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, I am is an outlier, right? Elon Musk is an outlier, right? Donald Trump is an outlier. Like you can go across the board. Obama's an outlier. It doesn't matter who you talk to. Anybody that's anything great. Michael Jordan, outlier. LeBron James, outlier. Right. Tom Brady, fully outlier. Like there's so many outliers or so many misfits, but they always get pushed back at some point. Always, every single one of them, because they reach a place where people want to be. And that mountaintop is very lonely. Denzel Washington speaks about that. Once you get up there, you look around, you may see another mountaintop over here, but you can't see who's on it. So you want to build some people up, bring them up. Maybe they don't have that same mountain, but you can look down and say, Hey man, you want to take mountaintop for a while, I need a break. And that that that's the hard part about being obsessed with anything to chase the goal is it's very lonely sometimes. And that's why you become an outlier. So you want to make sure that you empower people around you so you're not doing that all the time alone. Uh, the obsession topic in general is is crazy because you can it can change the course of your life. Like you could become obsessed with really bad things and that mm. turns you into a really bad person right it could be drug related it could be alcohol related it could be um obsession with you know girls or guys or, or different things like that that get you off the path versus becoming obsessed with something positive that you know can propel you to the top of that mountain like if you can argue and this is this is a crazy way of thinking but like a serial killer has that obsession what tom brady Tom Brady also has that obsession. Mm -hmm. It's just completely different, different topics. But you could all you can almost say like personality wise, they share like a kind of a common theme of having that obsession. Again, it's a weird way to think about it. But but that obsession can can push you in a certain positive way and also push you in a in a certain negative way. You know, because it is that narrow, right? If Tom Brady said, man, I like this knife and I like the feeling of stabbing somebody. He could have yeah. put every egg in that basket because that right. is his his mindset, his model. Like he went from, you know, what a fourth string quarterback in Michigan to the best quarterback of all time. That doesn't happen by just showing up. You know, you have to show up, but it happened through an obsession. You know, he's 45 years old, he looks like he's 14, you know, like he just hit puberty. And there's a reason he's like, you know, a bird, you know, with a little bit of protein. And that that that's helped him just take his life on the trajectory, but like there were some consequences, right? He's, he's going through some really tough times with his family and different things because you can't allow that to be all you have. That's why having something bigger than yourself, and I always say it's faith. It, it could be a goal. It could be anything. That's what kind of pulls you the right direction. Like you said, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol. It's easy, but I have that obsessive personality and addictive personality. Alcoholism runs in my family. So being able to navigate it in a different direction is really, really helpful. When I lost Paul, it, it, it was it was different, but I was losing that obsession while I was in the game. So it's it's, it's one of those things. It is a it is a fine balance. It's why you should be involved as much as possible. Stay so busy that you really can't get in trouble. You can't find anything that you know maybe you shouldn't be finding. And that that really helped me as a kid. I, I just stayed so busy. If I wasn't at the field, I was outside or doing something that always kept me going, always kept me on that narrow path. Right. So when did, when did you find out like you were good at baseball? 
Was that in high school you started getting recruited? There were some colleges coming in. When did you realize that all your hard work from growing up and your obsession with baseball, when did you realize that's going to help you uh, in an avenue to, to play on a college scholarship at a Division One school? Like I said, I was very naive. Uh, I was fully developed at 12. They call me man child, right? Like I was the same size I am now, 5'9", probably 165, 170. So in eighth grade, I was I was in a hitting group with, with the seniors. And then I, I made the varsity team as a freshman. And like, that's when I started to really realize, but even at 12, like I was the best kid in Knoxville, broke some records that were with Todd Helton. But that's all looking back. I had no clue. I had no clue that what I was doing was special. I had no clue that, you know, being on the var like varsity as a freshman was special. Um, and they gave me a hard time. Like it didn't happen in my high school. We were very good. And um, they gave me a hard time. And the, the coach was very like slow to make it all happen. And, you know, then it kind of took off from there. But I would say it should have been high school. And I wish I would have known how good I was. But I didn't know how good I was until I got put in the Hall of Fame in 15. They read my stats and I started crying. Because I was like, that would have changed my life. That would have changed that obsession a different direction to where, like, I didn't think I was always chasing the thing I, you know, needed to be chasing. Like, I was always doing similar things over and over and over again until I found that thing that, like, oh, no, I got to deviate right here. I need to take a pivot here. Because my coach did put up stats, which I thought was absolutely awesome until the end of the year. So we never saw them. You know, then you'd make all state, do whatever. You had no idea what your stats were. Well, I was mind blown and I was just crying and I appreciate it because like you don't need stats or anything else to tell you who you are. But at the same time, like some of those things were really cool to understand like where I was. And it was 20 years later and I was still a top 10, so many different categories, made all region, but all the, all these different things was part of like all these things that didn't know. It was crazy. So I should have known then, but as you know, being in the profession you guys are in, like, now we have all these numbers, analytics, and everything, and that kind of creates an identity for the kids. That's how they get recruited. So I wish that was there in high school. Since it wasn't, all I saw was a 5'9 fullback catching. Like, I don't think he's going to be able to move well enough. I don't think he's going to be tall enough. I don't think he's going to be able to project any further. I think he's you know, really tapped out because I was going 86 at 13. You know, I, I just – they thought I was going to be that dude that, you know, oh, he's driving to – he looks like he's driving to his, you know, peewee game. So yeah. <laughs> I had to fight that. And then I was all in going to Clemson because one of the coaches, he loved me. And then he went to Vanderbilt, Coach Corbin, and I couldn't get in. You know, he didn't have that power like he has now where he could get me in. And obviously my family couldn't afford it. So the recruiting process was really weird for me. So I just started calling everybody I could. And I really just wanted to go to Middle Tennessee to play for uh, Steve Peterson because a lot of people recruited me for second base, third base. And I wanted to catch. I just wanted to catch. and he picked someone else. So when they actually didn't accept the scholarship, they went to Indiana. I don't know who that is. Never would look it up. Uh, he came to my house and said, do you want to catch? I said, yes, sir. He goes, good. I was about to leave the house if he didn't say yes. And then I played left field my freshman year. So it all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, like and going, going a step further is that was my first fail my freshman year. I had 169. And for anybody out there listening, 169. It's not good. My GPA was three nine. We 
we would have thought they would have been separate. That's what my dad. Yeah, was you told. switched. You switched them. Yeah, even though I never went below a three ever in my life, my dad always said, "Yeah, I never thought you'd make it through school, son." And I thought your batting average would always be higher than your GPA. I'll never forget that. But then I went to summer school and had a guy who grabbed a hold of me, showed me something. I was moving in a, in, in a upward direction, missing the slider, which wasn't really a big pitch as big of a pitch or as good of a pitch in, in, in high school. So it changed my world. I had a huge summer and the rest is history. That's amazing. So at Middle Tennessee, did you ever experience any type of like distractions that, you know, a typical college kid would go through? Like I know uh, college parties, alcohol, girls, whatever that may be. Sometimes you could be a really good player in college and, and you're the, you know, a five-star recruit or four-star recruit, however you want to label it. But some kids get off that beaten path because of they find something else that might distract them from what their original goal was. Do you ever experience that through college that may have tried to pull you out of uh, playing baseball? Yeah, and it was it was a runaway. Um, what I mean is, I was dating a girl, uh, super sweet, uh, really pretty. Um, I just came into her life when trauma hit. So her dad cheated on her mom. Um, mom got a disease that brought it to life, ended up getting a divorce, uh, went from having everything you can imagine, daddy's little girl, to getting into a small house. Well, during that time, like, I became, a, I don't know, like a, a, a masculine figure in that family, and I put myself in a situation I didn't realize, especially with her mom, and I was a part of the family, and then, like, literally, like, I wasn't leaving. So when I went to college, that strain was hard because her mom was going through so much. She was going through so much. Her sister was out of the house. And I put it all on myself. I didn't know any better. And she was coming up every weekend. She was graduating early for me, all these different things. And to get away, I was, yeah, I, mean, I would go to go to parties. I would, I would go drink. I wasn't playing well. At first, it was all about me just diving in. Like I was waking up at five, go hit, I go to class, go hit work out twice a day. I was doing too much. And then the spring special, I started playing all with playing and traveling and everything. I couldn't do that as much. So yeah, that was my getaway. And then that, when that relationship ended, um, that freedom came back, you know, that summer I really focused on me and I met a friend that really poured into me of like, you know, you have to really start focusing on who you are, where you want to go and, and not let all these outlying things bring you back. You know, if, if, if they have a goal and they have something in mind, they're, they're not going to love you for what you have in your mind. It's never going to work. And so that ended and it was a blessing in disguise for her, me and everything else. And that kind of propelled me forward. But like, it was always a getaway for me. I knew it was wrong. I knew I didn't need to be there. But when I, when I did do anything, whether it was drinking or uh, you know, staying up all night, whatever it may be, it was always based around a getaway. I was trying to fill something or get away from something that I could probably have done in a more productive way. Did you see a direct correlation with like when you were going down that weird path, did you see a direct correlation with that and how you played baseball versus whenever you snapped out of that and realized you got that freedom back and you, and you kind of got back onto your path. Did you see a direct correlation in how well you were playing the game? I think you learn how to redirect your energy. So Yes and no, but that taught me a lesson. And then every fight I've had with my wife, I usually had a homer, maybe two, but also the highs in my life. Like when I got engaged, I had a homer that, that next day. Like 
Okay. Um, not that they correlate necessarily. When I got saved, walked off in the woods, came back, hit a home run. I think there's a a like psychological effect that like you can redirect to like put you in the zone. I really do. Like I, I feel like sometimes it 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 gives you something to think about that's so much bigger than what you're actually doing. All the work and everything else just goes out and does the job, right? Like the motions happen, like you have that freedom. And I'm sure you guys both know exactly what I'm talking about is like when good, bad, or ugly, like when people have passed away, my family, I went back and just dominated. Like I had 400 for six weeks after my uh, wife's dad passed away in high A. Like, so you learn to redirect. Like it's just about where you are and the choices you're willing to make now. It's easy to run to the bad, right? It's easy to say, I'm just going to drink myself to Bolivian. I'm going to do these drugs to, to not see those things that are happening. But if you see them and you go forward, it's really something that could change your life. And that, that, that switch that just brought up with my wife's dad was right before we got married. And it was a, one of those life changing things, especially looking back that literally changed my life. And it's part of the story that is being created right now. So when you said you, you had a friend say like, Hey, you need to focus on who you are, where you want to go to kind of get yourself back on track. And that's, you know, part of the reason, et cetera, why you left your, your previous girlfriend. So how would you say that, that you do that? How do you identify where you want to go, what your important priorities are? So that way you can begin this transition. And I would assume and believe that had a large effect on how you learned to channel your negative energy if someone passes away to having success on the field or if something's good, using that good energy to, to continue to perform well as well. Um, so what would you say? How do you begin to identify that and how do you start implementing it? And eliminating distractions and learning how to bring positive people along and removing the negative. First, tell yourself the truth, and then go tell someone else. That's gonna that that's gonna have to create vulnerability. Which, if you look at the Latin definition of vulnerability, it's actually courage, C O R. And most people don't have that. Most people don't want to do that. I was once again so naive. I didn't know any better. And when they got so bad, I went to somebody that was similar to her that was a little bit psycho more like more than anything. So it was a balance between understanding of like, she's been through the extreme where she's been hard on somebody like a guy. And she told me the truth. It's like, I would say, go, she needs to figure out who she is. Like I did. And you need to figure out who you are for your own, for your own well-being. Like you, you've never been able to do that. And that was, that was a cool, cool moment. It wasn't somebody that necessarily would have, I would have thought to ask for advice. It was just somebody I was like, well, she said she was kind of psycho at one point and she went through a lot of family stuff. I'm just going to call her, talk to her. And that talk through therapy is what ended up being good for me. Like I'm an externalizer when it comes to my emotions. I'm an internalizer when it comes to, you know, being, uh, I guess, an empathetic human being for someone else. Like I'll internalize for someone else and I'll carry the weight. And, and I actually think that's good for me, which is weird for most. But I have to release mine and I have to walk through it to understand it. And when you went through some of these hardships that you're talking about, you know, you batted 169 as a freshman, you know, something that you're probably not used to. You're probably just, you know, you mentioned growing up, you broke all these records, one of the top players in Tennessee, all these different things. You hit something that's probably your first like sign of hitting adversity through baseball, at least. Um, did you ever think about leaving the game? Did you ever think about quitting? Like maybe this isn't for me. Uh, this is too tough. I don't I don't know if I could handle this. You know, I, I'm not as good as everyone thinks I am. I'm not as good as I thought I was. Do you ever think about just 
being done and moving on to something else? Or were you pretty much like, I'm going all in to get better? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with this game. I love this game. I need to play it. Now, I never thought that one time until 2008. Um, and the circumstances were the reason why. Yeah, during that time, I, I'm thankful for that year. Like, I mean, I can't tell you how thankful I am for that year. It's like every adversity just really drives that next good thing. You know, if you, if you want to look at it that way, and everything I've ever been through, five knee surgeries that were mostly genetic-based, uh, all the things that have put me in a, a weird spot and, like, I was right there, like, you know, going to arbitration, I tear my knee, you know, have my best year in the big leagues, I tear my knee and decide I'm going to play through this one for three months, not even that year. And all those things were a blessing in disguise. I mean, the next year after that, uh, year I won six nine as a freshman, I ended up having uh, MRSA or mono, one of the worst cases, I was 45 pounds right before I went back to school, missed the first two weeks of school. Um, the teachers did not give me any leeway, so I had to catch up for two weeks of work. Uh, then that stress and my immune system being down, I got MRSA in my leg, thought I was going to lose my leg. I called my mom, mom going to surgery, don't know what's going to happen. They said, they're either going to be able to scrape my bone, clean this off, or I'm not going to have a leg. I'll talk to you later. That's literally what happened. Mom drives up. Uh, I'm dating my wife at the time. She's there. She's going through all this with me, actually. I always say she gave me, gave me a monitor from kissing. Um, and then that fall... <laughs> That fall, actually, I had knee surgery. So I, I had the big three after, you know, figuring out that I had a great year. And that propelled me to understand, okay, well, I can get through this. And then I go to my junior, I'm All-American, and I get drafted. I thought I was going to be a third, fourth rounder, ended up being a seventh rounder. That drove me harder and harder. Everything was driving me harder and harder until I had something that I never had to deal with in 2008. I think on the topic of adversity, and it can sometimes become corny, but it's also one of the most true things in the world. Like you said, some of the best things ever happen immediately after adversity. And like the way I met Tim, I tore my ACL, right? And I knew I just needed to change. I needed something different connected with Tim. And then, you know, my athletic career just accelerated from there, right? So it's it's weird. I don't know how to describe it, but if you can just get through the adversity, like Tim asked you the question, like you think about quitting. When I tore my ACL, my initial thought was, I'm retired. I'm done. This is like my 30th injury. I can't do it anymore. After enough time, for whatever reason, something just flipped at me. It was, there's no way I'm going out like this. I'm not finishing with a torn ACL. It's, I'm coming back and it's going to end at least in a different term than, than me being injured again. Right. So, and it's hard to, to give advice from, from that standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. Other than just figure out, find what works for you day to day, something small, get over it because it, it's typically the lights at the end of the tunnel. Um, and, and that's another corny saying, but it's, it's just, to me, it's true. And I, I like to emphasize those little points like, like you just brought up. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And I was, I always tell kids when they get hurt, um, one of my little dudes that, um, really took off, uh, he ran into a fence, made a catch and his uh, bottom half of his leg snapped in half. Freshman, he's playing varsity scrimmage. And then came back, was okay. And then he got a collision, uh, ruptured his spleen and broke a couple of ribs, came back. And what I told him was like, look at it as, a, as an opportunity to go outside yourself, look at all the things that you're not doing that you could do better, and then study the game. Start asking as many questions. Be right next to a guy that maybe has you know some wisdom to impart on you 
and see how far you can go. I mean, I'll never forget 2013, I dug in and I was like, I'm going to figure out my best way to rehab. So like I navigated through my rehab I, and then that was a blessing in disguise of 15. My dad had cancer. We had to go home for six weeks. I did it on my own. Um, but like that taught me more about my body, my body movements and how to understand like what's going on to un unload, release, make sure that I'm being able to fire properly. But it also was an opportunity for me to change my swing. I changed my swing by you know sitting on a chair with a one hand bat, working on really getting my, my path or my barrel on plane sooner with just one hand. I did that. They were like, you can't hit until this time. I was like, can I sit in a chair and with one hand? Yes, I can. Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? So when I hit this, I had taken thousands, if not tens of thousands of swings based on one to two principles I was trying to get right. So that year, I ended up hitting 315, eight home runs. And it was probably the best back up in Major League Baseball, all due to stubbornness that you're telling me I can't, but I can if I do it like this. And all the things when you start looking outside the box, kept me in like this. So I wasn't thinking about all the things that were bad, which is easy to do, as you know, like that switch. But that would have never happened if my software year didn't happen. Right. If I didn't right. know that, you know, what you're capable of and just continue to say no and hear that you're not going to play this year. You're not going to do this. Okay. I'm not going to play this year. I hit two homers first game. You know, you're not going to have any power. You're not going to have any speed. Like, come on, man. Like, you can't tell a human being they can't do something. Well, you can't run a four-minute mile. Somebody did. Right. Always something that we're going to be told we can't do. But if you're stubborn enough, besides maybe me playing in the NBA, <laughs> you're going to be able to do it. <laughs> so in college, right, you finish up. You said you're an All-American junior year, have this massive year. You mentioned you were projected third or fourth round. You fell to the seventh round. I know that's not a, a crazy drop. Um, was that still because of, like, He's not tall enough. He's not fast enough. We think maybe he's he's capped out. He's not projecting as as high as we think. Was that maybe the reason that you fell? And how did you feel whenever you know you're thinking in your head third, fourth round, and then you go to the seventh round to to Colorado? Honestly, I wish somebody would have told me. I, I I really I can I can assume things, um, or I took assumptions at the time. Looking back, my scouting report, I probably wasn't seventh rounder. If, if I was if I was in the draft, uh, I think what hurt the most was having two catchers in my conference get drafted before me. That was all. Yeah, I was first team all conference, all American. So like, you know, usually when you're first, you get you go for it, right? Like, it's not like oh, I'm the smartest kid in class, valedictorian. Well, we're gonna pick number three. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's just usually not that, the way it works. So like, it made no sense, and it's still like. In life, it makes if I sell the most, I make the most money, right? If I if I do the best, I usually get rewarded the most. So that was a weird moment for me. So you know, I remember fifth round hit, he got picked, and I just walked outside, started shooting basketball as my freedom, and then I got the call seventh round, ready to go. Um, I, I think my biggest fear in that moment was I was going to fall to the tenth round, and I'd already told myself if I went tenth or higher, I was going back to school. I made that gotcha. promise, and. <clears throat> Like I said, when I, when I set my mind or something or, you know, I, I tell you something, I genuinely believe I'm going to do it, but I will also try to, with everything in my heart, stick to my word. So you're going through, you're going through the Rockies organization. You get up there, you're one of the higher ranked prospects in the organization. Again, I don't, I don't really know like who comes up with those things. Like you said, if, if someone's playing really, really well and better than someone else, but then it always is like, well, this guy's 
still better. And it's like, I don't know if that's a media thing. I don't know if that's the organization. It's too much media. It. It's too yeah. much media in, in all sports. And even the Hall of Fame voting, like, they have to do a better job of having a balance between media, players, and fans. Like, right. Th there's a lot of controversy in the last Hall of Fame of uh, Major League Baseball. Like, Schilling should be in. He's not in because of his politics. Right. He didn't have politics back then. He didn't say yeah. a word back then, right? Bonds, maybe the single yeah. best player of, of all time until Otani was created by some lab somewhere. <laughs> but, like, the reality of it is, like, Bonds didn't fill a drug test. He also probably didn't take anything that was illegal then. Schilling didn't know like Donald Trump was or his political beliefs. And like, what about the rapist? What about the drug addicts? What about all these different people that are in the Hall of Fame that they that wasn't a problem because it wasn't part of their time? Like, there's been steroids for what 50 Forever. years, 100 years, yeah. whatever. Yeah, like you don't know. They weren't testing for it. And that's and Bonds didn't even take steroids. It's the reality of like looking at it for what it is, put an asterisk by him, tell a story. But kids should be able to learn from that by just completely blackballing these guys. Like, if you're going to make the biggest impact, you really believe Schilling saying the wrong things, you don't believe what he's doing, then put him on a pedestal. Let him speak yeah. it out loud and make a fool of himself, right? Bonds, if you don't believe he's the greatest player of all time, then take him off of everything. He's on all the stat lines. He's in everything, right? Like, that's not – you're, you're doing one but not the other. It's, it's, it just drives me insane. That's not the way it should be because that's the way life is. You're just saying, right. no, I don't want to deal with that. Right? Pete, Pete Rose is another one. Pete Rose gambling and all that stuff. And now the Reds just signed like this massive deal mm -hmm. with one of the uh, casinos for sports yeah. betting. And it's just like that double yeah. standard just drives you nuts. And it drives you insane. It's like, what are we even talking about? Like who's making these decisions? And why? Right, you know, exactly. But, and that's why it should be a, a completely collective that, that, that does it. So you get different viewpoints. Like I always say, I learn the most from people that have nothing to do with baseball, whether it be a fan, whether it be someone that doesn't know the sport, because they ask the best questions. Right. One of my friends is a hockey guy. He has some of the greatest questions when it comes to baseball that it drives like a thought for me to go analyze or get on and do my mechanics on ATT. It's so cool because a lot of times guys that are involved in it, they just get enamored with these like, like big hitters they can't leave it and that, that that's the hard part so yeah like i don't know how they come up with it exactly but it is probably just a bunch of khaki pants saying Ooh, he's a good player yeah it's almost like hot takes hot takes are the the thing today it's like you could just say whatever you want in media and then someone grabs it and runs with it you, you see it on espn Stephen a smith and certain uh -huh. guys like that they just one hot take, and it's all of a sudden like, well, Stephen A. Smith said it got to be true type of exactly, thing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you've but, never met Stephen A. Smith. He's just a TV personality, right? Like, right, like, exactly. Yeah, but, you have no yeah, idea. He carries the holy grail of knowledge. Right. So back to, to the original question was, you get drafted by Colorado seventh round. You're working your way through the organization. You get traded. And then you get traded again, which was probably one of the biggest blessings for you coming to Pittsburgh. Talk about that feeling when you get traded is that something you kind of mentally prepare for because you know the business but i still like i know uh trade deadlines right now in the nfl roquan smith from the bears was crying one of his buddies got traded and he's late he found out during a press conference and he broke down in tears there's there's such a human element to all of this and it's hard to explain that to a fan because there's fantasy football they're outside looking in the looking in the fishbowl but professional athletes college athletes 
we're all still normal human beings. We have feelings. No one talks about you have to uproot your family and move from Colorado to, I think you went to Boston first. And then all of a sudden now you have to go to Pittsburgh. It's like, that's, that's very challenging mentally. If you have kids, if you have a wife, if you know, your family, that's very, very challenging. So the human element, I know a lot of people don't understand, but talk about that feeling when you find out like, Hey, we don't want you anymore. We're going to, we're going to trade you and move you along to someone else. Yeah. The human element. I, lo I love that. It's something that me and, me and my wife are very passionate about because it isn't talked about. So I'm, I'm in spring training with Colorado. I'm in Bigley camp. They have me go down to get some at-bats in my game. So we probably have, I don't know, four or five days left. So I, I still don't know if go to AAA or the big leagues. Just made it to the big leagues year before. Kind of figured I was going to go to AAA, just waiting to say, hey, Michael, come on. Um, but I'm out playing. I catch the first inning. And then they pull me off the field and throw me in the bullpen. No, nothing else. I got nothing else. And I'm like, what did I do? What happened? And my wife actually ended up coming up to me, like coming to the ballpark. Come to the bullpen, finding me, and tell me you just got traded. I'm like, what do you mean? She said, my phone's been blowing up. You were on the bottom line. You got traded to Boston. I'm like, why can't someone tell me that, right? So now, so I'm Col sure Colorado, me. Colorado didn't tell you that. You no, I, I, I watched. A, I watched and caught bullpens because you can't get hurt, right? So, um, but they wouldn't tell me, so I wasn't gonna let them not let me catch bullpens. So I caught bullpens. So three and a half hours later, I go into talk to the farm director, GM. And uh, I think it was assistant DM. They told me, and the farm director stayed talking about human element. That guy literally cried because he felt like uh, he was so much a part of my like journey and just the way I treated him because he really got to run in the middle because he wasn't a baseball guy. I was treated with respect. And some of the things he said to me were like almost made me tear up. And then I was off. Like that was it. Like. I cut and dry. I went to the weight room. I did everything that they told me not to do. I snatched. I cleaned. And I bounced because they couldn't tell me not to. Right, I'm Boston right now. So I always wanted. I always wanted to do that because they always told me not to. So I had to. Um, I had to go out and do that. That was fun. Um, and then, you know, I think I left immediately. And then this is where the real human element comes in. There's always a a a super soldier behind me. This is my life. So. She got a friend, packed up her car. I helped as much as I could. I'm out the next day playing in Florida. Uh, immediately actually made the team because Veritech got hurt. Had to sit in the hotel room for three days. Couldn't leave because the media couldn't see me. Uh, there was no taxi squad, so I got no time, nothing. Veritech magically got better. Flew back, played a couple more games, went to Paul Tuckett. Um, and they got put on the taxi squad a couple different other times. It was really, really a tough Transition is my first time getting traded. And then the second one, I was at the grocery store. Wife's at home. I'm ringing out. I'm, I'm checking out. Then ring it back and take it back, put it back on the shelf and bounce. Um, and the cool part about that trade is, is where I where I gained respect for Theo, Francona, um, and Ben Sherrington. They all three called me. I was in a really tough situation. I didn't complain. I didn't do anything. Um, and it wasn't fair. It literally just was not fair. Um, but that's, who cares? It's business, right? And they called and apologized. We said, we're giving you this. You, you, you've been on you've been on the trade block for a while because people have been calling, told me a couple teams are calling. We want to give you the best opportunities. So we're sending you to Pittsburgh. And they got like a bag of balls. You know, like it was, it was yeah. whatever, player be named later, cash. And 
I'll never forget that because that was a human element for them. They gave me an opportunity because I put my head down, I did my work, I didn't complain, even though it was a terrible position to be in. So you get to Pittsburgh. For what's the the first thing? You know, are you assigned to AAA? Are you assigned to the big league team? How how did that work? Right to the big leagues, baby. It was awesome. So for you, that was huge. I mean, that, that huge. trade it was, was, was kind of what you were waiting for. Yeah. Yeah, that's why so, they did it. Like, I really think to the day, that's why they did it. Because it was that big of an opportunity um, that they said, we need to give this kid a shot and let him go. Because we've kind of thrown him all over the place. And he had to catch a doubleheader and do some things that you know, we, we right. let him catch one day. I cut a doubleheader and the bullpen. So I was running back and forth. Jeez. It was just one of those things. Like, I just did it. I didn't know any yeah. better. And obviously that hit my numbers and, and did things because you're not going to perform as well you know, in the middle of June doing those right. things. Uh, but, yeah, you get rewarded sometimes for just putting your head down. Who was that. the catcher Who was the catcher at the time in Pittsburgh whenever you got there? Like, who who were you taking the spot of during that time? Like, do you, do you remember? Because that was going to be my next question was going into, like, a different clubhouse. How does that feel? Because you're, you're not – part of that team yet essentially so yeah, I mean, talk a little bit about that so it's weird i, I think it was uh snyder um forget his first names snyder brown with two catchers domit was hurt it was the year they had i think like six guys until i came in that were hurt i think this year we actually beat the the, the record that we set that year so um yeah that sucks like you never want to be the guy that comes in and replaces a guy that's well regarded in the clubhouse. So you, you know to come in, be humble, be hungry, do the work, and, and kind of have a lay of the land. You know, not come in like you own the place and everything else. Maybe a little bit different nowadays. It's a lot more entitlement in the game. But yeah, I just went in, and it's really tough. And I think once again, your your better half usually gets the brunt of it because they don't get to see the clubhouse. They don't get to see the conversations. A lot of these guys don't share a lot with their wife. I share everything. So. Like she shared with me, so like they get more than we do, you know. Right. And it's really hard when you're the guy that ends up getting hurt and it creates opportunity, and she has to hear like some of those things, like oh, this person, you know, gets hurt stuff. Like, I mean, people are mean and people suck a lot of times, and you just have to deal with it. But like, women are hard; like they're they're really tough. So like, she had to deal with a lot more than I did, and she's not someone to ever like push back or whatever unless you you let the the line out. But man. That's what I keep thinking about when you said going in that clubhouse. For me, you know, 10 minutes within 10 minutes, I'm naked in the shower, dangling, hanging. They get to know me real fast. So, like, <laughs> you're out there, you're vulnerable. It is what it is. Like, for her, like, they're done up, they have the mask, they have everything that moves. Like, it's different. So, yeah. they can kind of put a big mirage in front of like what's really going on behind the scenes, what's really making them say some of those things. Because it's usually a projection of what's going on there, but not anything you're doing. So, yeah, I always feel for her and the human element of the wives that are there, especially the new, newbies, because that's tough. It really is. Because, like, everybody wants to grab a hold and not let go. It's so hard to stay. Hard to get there, but it's really hard to stay. Wow. Yeah, I think one thing I want to touch on, too, and we keep highlighting it, the, the human element in sports truly are, it's a business. Right. So hearing good stories like about how the Red Sox treated you to give you that opportunity. I love hearing things like that, because when you hear, you know, people get upset about player leaving for a reason X, Y or Z. Well, they have to do what's best for their family. 
So yeah. it's cool if you were to see, like, granted, the Red Sox can spend a bazillion dollars on, like, the Pirates, but it would be cool, like, if you see a story of a player taking, like, a hometown discount to stay with Boston or to stay with Charrington, because I know you said he, w- he was part of that, just because they're good people, right? Those are the people that you stay for, right? It's not the the jerks, like you said, the mean people or whatever. So I, I think that's really cool that they gave you that opportunity, particularly because you, you work to deserve it. Absolutely. And if you look at Ramos Ramirez in Cleveland, he took a lot less money. Who's that manager? Terry Francona. Francona. Right, right. Right. How did he grab the the team that's nine million dollars payroll short of Pittsburgh and take them as far as they did? It's because right. he's literally a loving, caring, serving leader that will tell you the truth. Right. It's a huge thing in the game. It's a huge thing as you guys know. Like if you tell a kid you're not gonna make it, you tell the right kid that and he'll make it. If you tell right. a kid that like you you need to figure some things out and it, it's not about you know him writing a check to you it, it doesn't even matter anymore there'll be an abundance of money dropping in on your business now i'm sure you know that like that's the reality like if you really genuinely care about the human being the things may not come immediate but in the long run i'm seeing that now in my life what can come back from the right thing even if it's not for you maybe double fold maybe triple fold maybe something you don't even imagine and my life is going to be a great picture of that, I believe, in the long run, because I have people coming back in my life, and what they're doing now, I'm like, holy crap, this aligns really well. I don't know where it's going to go. And that's the cool part about just treating people the way, whether it's, you want to say, the way you want to be treated, or the way that maybe you should just treat people purely, you know? Right I, think, I think that has a lot to do with your identity, too, because the, the you you find out kind of who you are, how you respond to certain situations. So if you have someone like Terry Francona, who's giving you that honesty, giving you that love, you're going to gravitate towards him. And that's going to help shape your identity inside and outside of your sport. Um, I've always been a Terry Francona fan, just from a baseball perspective. So uh, hearing this more is just going to make me like him more. I try to root for good people. So yeah. I think that's, that's a pretty cool thing. Pretty cool. Yeah, guy. He probably doesn't even remember he did it. Yeah. Maybe he yeah. does. But like, you know, like yeah. it was such a, I never met him. He's one of the few mm-hmm. guys in baseball that, like, I've I've shaken his hand. You know, hey, how you doing, boy? Good passing. That's it. So, yeah. like, other than that, like, this man probably doesn't even know who he is. There's an impact on my life for sure. So you're into Pittsburgh, and your everything we've talked about. Any Pittsburgh person listening to this, like, you embody what Pittsburgh is. Kind of like the tough, gritty, hardworking. Like Pittsburgh fans aren't the hardest fans to please. Like you could be struggling, but if you just show like you give effort, like you're diving into to second base and you're, you know, all covered in dirt every single game and, and you're roughing people up, them trying to slide into home like that is Pittsburgh. Like they love that the physical, the grinder, the hardworking person, you became kind of this like legend in Pittsburgh, right? You're, you're the fool all of a sudden. So <laughs> I'll use I'll use it. You were you were one of the most popular players at the time. You had Kutch, you had Neil Walker, but you know, your AJ Burnett, AJ it was kind of a similar thing. Like AJ Burnett, like he had this, he at least showed it. I don't I don't know AJ personally, but he showed it that F U mentality that he's just gonna grind you and grind you. Don't take me off the mound. I'm gonna throw till my arm falls off type of personality. It, and again, I don't know AJ personally, but at least he showed that. Uh, to the city and you were that guy like and again you became this the fort when so 
was there like a weird time like when all of a sudden you're out in Pittsburgh like with your family and then people like start to notice you was that kind of like a a weird thing because it's probably hard like in Boston like you're part of the Red Sox they got all these millions of dollars spent on a certain player and these like you know these superstar players but like I said in Pittsburgh we're always like pulling for the underdog those are the the guys that like stick out maybe even even more than like a Cutchwood or or a Neil Walker would so uh, talk about that. If you like walking through the city, like there's the fort, got to get pictures, got to get autographs. When when did you start feeling that type of vibe? You know, it's funny at Boston, I kept getting Wes Walker and that following <laughs> a long time. My goal was to like make him um, hear like Michael McHenry the fort, um, which ended up happening. We ended up meeting. We want to look like contest uh, Denver when I was in Denver. Cause that's so Broncos. funny. Um, so really, really funny story. Um, but I would say after my first home run is where, like, I started to see that more. I hit a home run. Who for? You know, Greg Brown yeah. makes everything epic. So, um, got a curtain call that day. It was one of the best feelings ever. So I thought I was never going to hit a home run. There was a guy that had some pop in minor leagues and was known to hit the ball in the yard. And it just wasn't happening. And finally it did. It was a big moment. We're in first place. And the stadium has, like, 30-something thousand people in it. So it was really special. So after that moment, that's when you know people noticed me and, and some things started happening. But I would say that now I get noticed more than ever as a player. You know, we're a mask for a living. So maybe that's part of it. Being on TV, being in the community um, was a big deal. And I would say it stems from 2013 when I got hurt. I didn't know what to do. So um, they asked me to come on at and I didn't want to do it. My wife said, yes, you should do it. I said, you're the boss. I did it. Blessing in disguise. One day game to 12 and then that sparked me to say well if, I, if they like me enough to get on there and talk baseball let me get out in the community as much as possible and speak spoke at 12 different places between that ending to the season to not think about this is an incredible year the blackout game and everything so went to churches read books did all the things that were so fearful in my life so that's really i think what built up more of the fort after the fact you know because like when i when on the shelf, my college coach said I didn't didn't exist. You know, when I had mono until I was back on the field, I didn't exist. So that was the mentality I had. I have to get back on the field to exist. This time, it's the opposite coach. Like I still exist. Maybe it's not the guy that has the uniform on, but it's the guy that can make an impact. So I just focused on that, and it was really a big growth time for me because I put myself in situations I didn't want to be in. I taught Bible studies, did all different things that I didn't necessarily want to do in a time where I was struggling. So I had to fight through that and learn, you know, not to go too far, tell the story right, like, you know, make sure you talk to people before you bring up maybe some hardships that's happened. And um, we even had to grab someone that's writing a story. You know, I got really in-depth with my family, and I was like, you have to talk to them first. I was like, oh, well, they did it. Like, what do you mean? I have to talk to them. Like, it's like, no, you have to. I'm like, okay, I got it. So, like, just those, those learning moments were important. When you do see it, and we talked about this earlier, like, kind of an outlet. Do you miss baseball? Like, will you always miss it? I know you said you kind of got to leave on your own terms, but uh, you said you retired 2017. Um, did you hit a point there where you're like, I don't know what I want to do? Or like, was it pretty much, I got to stay around baseball. This has been my life. I, you know, I still love the game. Um, talk about that transition a little bit. Well, if I was a remote controller, I don't have a pause button. So I knew that I had to get into something and I knew I needed to be in baseball. And honestly, just talking to certain people and, and, and seeking some wisdom, 
I knew that I was probably more a coach, consultant, advisor, someone that was going to be a part of it, that maybe not enthralled in it. I didn't know what that meant. Um, so I chose to take this route. And the reason why I did is I literally put on a piece of paper, this is the team that signed for Pittsburgh being one of them, Dodgers being the other, Colorado being the other. That's it. The three teams. It's the only place someone in the world. Well, Pittsburgh fell through, Colorado is no-go, and Dodgers called. Literally gave me the red card. Gave me everything I ever wanted, and I said no. Call back, give me more. No. Call back, give me more. <laughs> and it was one of those moments where I was like, what did I do? So I called this guy named Jerry Weinstein. Know anything about catching? He's the godfather of catching. Um, I said, Jerry. I literally thought this guy was going to say, you're an idiot, go play. So call him, I said, Jerry. I have the situation. AT&T, Dodgers, Dodgers situation is just off the charts. I'm really goes, let me ask you one question. I said, okay. This is how he's straight shooter. He goes, when you're analyzing someone on the field, are you going to be mad when you're better than them? I said, no, why? He goes, take the job. Bigger things are coming. Love you. Hung up. Literally called the Dodgers, said I'm out. Sorry. Called AT&T in. Sorry, AT&T gave me some grace about six weeks to, to, to make that decision. So I've been on that journey, and I'm excited where it's going. Uh, I feel like it's just now coming to life where, where it could go. But, like, I knew I needed to walk away. I knew I needed to walk away during the season that year because um, 2016 was so hard. It was so hard. And it was a good year on the field. Most stuff was off, off the field. It was so, so hard. That 2017, I thought it was going to be like fun and, and a breeze. It just, it just never manifested. And I knew like the joy was going away, the obsession was going away, and it was shifting. And I needed to allow that to happen, but I didn't want it to. So talk about what you're doing now. I know you mentioned, and, and I watch you. I, I will say it's challenging to watch the Pirates at times, given <laughs> <laughs> given where the – because Tim's I, a hater. I love the Buckeyes. I'm not so a hater. Well, let me ask you a question. Since you guys are, <laughs> you were just talking about AJ Burnett, myself, embodying what the city is. As as users, as guys that you know are involved, like why do you think we don't embody that as a team? Why why don't we just nail down what a pirate is? AJ Burnett is a perfect example of what a pirate is, right? Like I'm 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 maybe someone that's running the ship, right? Like Oh man, the hats, blah, blah, blah. Like, really embody that no surrender attitude, that kind of hard, tough, like, this is our house type of attitude. And then, like, become a, become a unit that, like, will literally die for each other because that would make us different. And I've, I've, I've often, like, when people ask me about Bob Nutting and stuff, I say, Bob Nutting is a good human being. He's a great business person. I just don't think he has an understanding of an identity that should be created. Which is already created in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Right? I think that's, I think that's my answer. Hat, go bang, bang the steel. Like, let's yeah. go. I think that's my answer. I, I don't feel, and again, as a pi I I always tell Colin I'm a fair weather pirate fan. I, I don't want to get my hopes up too high because I just feel like I'm always gonna be crushed. So when, and again, I kind of have that obsessive behavior where I love something. I will watch every single pirate game and be from inning one till the, the very end of the game. I I I have a bad day the next day if they lose like yeah. that. That's how much I I like and love my Pittsburgh teams. I feel like that with the Steelers, Penguins, Pirates, but the Pirates just, it, 
my entire life, it's like I you get your hopes up and then and then they're not there. But whenever they were good, that you guys had that identity. And I've met Kutch before. I've met Neil Walker before. I've I've had conversations with Kutch. He's like the star of your team at that time. He's also a really good person. Really, like he he was a really great person to talk. He didn't have to talk to me. He he took time multiple times. You know his uh his kid. My kids were sick at one time, and uh and Kutch trains with one of my really good friends, and I happen to be working with him. So Kutch was there, and uh, we were just talking, and and he told me about times his kids were sick, and hey, this is what you should do. And being a new dad, that's something that like again, I talk, I'm talking to. Andrew McCutcheon, who's a baseball superstar, and and he's given me parenting advice like that. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's who he is. Yeah. But those teams then had that identity, and the teams now, I don't want to call it Key Brian Hayes, but that video that surfaced where he's digging in his pockets for sunflower seeds or whatever is a guy's rounding third base. As a Yenzer, as the hardworking type guy, and I I don't know Key Brian Hayes. I've never met the guy, but I don't want to see that. That drives me insane. Like I want to see the covered in dirt, you know, I want to see the fort, AJ Burnett. I want to see that. And that that's why I get disheartened because I know they can be good on a lower budget. There's other teams that show that they're good on a lower budget. Why can't the pirates do the same thing? And, and again, you're, you're the inside guy there. So you'll know a lot more than I am, but that's my, yeah, we, that's we my could dive into that all day long. It's just like, <laughs> I think transparency is a problem. Yeah. And uh, people tell me not to say that at work. And I'm like, why? They ask me, I'll tell them whatever they want. And that's the reality. It's like they, they need to be as transparent as possible. They need to unleash AT&T to be able to give as much insight as possible. Like keep our eye need to answer tough questions. I mean, especially in the clubhouse, they should answer the toughest questions possible. But our media doesn't ask tough questions either. Yeah. Like, our media is literally like, they have like, uh, I don't know, toilet paper, boxing gloves. Like, oh, we're not going to hurt. And even Derek Shelton knows that, like, he's he he loves the tough questions to grow. And I think that's you know something that would be really important for the fans, but just haven't done it yet. So. Yeah, and not to not to dive in on that. I, I went on a little Yinzer <laughs> rant there, but that's okay. I love it. <laughs> so tell us about the next phase in your life. So you're you're doing the media thing now. Where do you where do you see yourself going? Do you have a what's the master plan in your head that, and again, you've chipped away your entire life at breaking down boundaries that people said you can't do. Where are you going with this whole thing? Where are we going to see you in, in five to 10 years, knowing that you're going to be super successful in this industry? So I will be one empowering kids and young adults to find their potential with a passion that leads to the purpose. That's, 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 who I, who I want to be and I feel like who God's made me to be is like kind of just helping people squeeze that orange as much as you can to get the most juice out of it, but realizing that maybe they have multiple oranges. Um, too often people say, you maximize your career. I'm like, actually, you know, I did very well, but I didn't even come close to maximizing. And I can explain that because I went back and looked at the analytics. And if I would have done this and this and this, I could have been a much better player, would have made a lot more money and that could have had a bigger impact. But Nonetheless, like I want to empower kids like, like Vinny. It's a great example. I have, I have a bunch of stories like that, and I didn't see it until my buddy that's a SEAL and my wife within a week's time said, dude, like you literally pulled a passion out of me that I didn't see, and I'm transitioning my entire life to it and successful. And like that's just happened over, and I just don't ask for anything. I just usually just let it play out, and I've been burned and different things in business. But what I've realized is like I just want to shine a light 
in the darkest moments for times, and I don't want to literally blow out that candle for, for people. So I want to stay in the media. I want to create a brand and a platform that helps me impact more people, empowering people like you guys and others that are good people, so helping the good people win, to create a network or a community that ultimately is all trying to do the same thing that ends up being fair. You know, like, your idea of business, everybody should get a, get, get a piece of the pie, but everybody wants literally half the pie. And it's like, dude, you could have a bakery if you just get a slice. If you just do this properly, and that's how life works. Like, be fair, be real, be accountable, have that discipline to show up every day and see what happens. You know, there's too many people think, like, oh, I have this opportunity. And then they're like, well, I want $30 an hour. Dude, just take the opportunity right, and yeah. see where it goes. And so in five to 10 years, I hope to have created a couple businesses um, to pretty much hand off to somebody to to do that's really their passion. And I hope they do the same thing. And I want to be consulting and put my face out there to talk about my faith, my journey, and the lessons that have been imparted on me. And then I want to talk to every smart person that I can find. And, and let them do the same thing and then teach for them. So that's that's where I'm going. Um, in the process of creating one of the businesses right now, just gonna see what happens. I've done a couple of businesses with others. Now I'm doing a couple that were just mine and get to find some people to you know be a part of it and see what happens. Where can we find you on social media? Where can we follow you? Uh, at the Fort McHenry, and if you start there, kind of take you everywhere you want to go. Whether it's Twitter, Instagram. I just started the Facebook again, I guess, and uh, YouTube. I'm, I'm going to start up. So, yeah, just take it one step at a time. Man, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to talk with you, man. It's been incredible. Some of the knowledge and stories you shared, I think, are going to be so beneficial for everyone listening in. And, again, just just uh, as an outsider watching your baseball career, especially while you're while you're in Pittsburgh, you know, we're we're both fans, and uh, and you embody that grit, that toughness, that – that uh, we and you know aspire to to be like all the time, and and uh, and that's why you're so big in Pittsburgh. Again, you are a legend in Pittsburgh. You might not think you so. Are. People uh, love you in Pittsburgh, man. You you're awesome, and uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on our podcast. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I, and I pray that whatever legend status I have, I can use it for the glory of the kingdom. And and two, like I I, I really am serious. I want to come check out y'all's place. Get some meathead moments in, and then anytime you guys want to come to a game, all are uh, pretty much there every day. So uh, I'd love to have you there and get awesome. your tickets. So, I know you uh, mentioned earlier too. You mentioned the whole like the high school kids are small. That we're, we're not that facility. We do train for speed. We do train for power. We do train for those things. But we lift big weights. We split squats. I wasn't even <laughs> yeah, like we, referring to you. If no, you're not picking grind, up steel man. in Pittsburgh, we got problems. <laughs> yeah, we you got some count, grinders. Like, yeah, you would think in Tennessee like. It would be different. Like that's one thing. Like the mentality of like football and stuff up here makes it a lot different. Tennessee, you know, if you see the guys coming out of there, they're usually quarterback, wide receiver. It's all the like you know, big time, you know, skills. And yeah, it's not those grinders, right? You don't see a lot of fullbacks and you know, guys yeah. that are just pounding the iron. So um, yeah, I wasn't even referring to you guys. You guys. No, are like, I, and if, if awesome. you do, I'm like, oh no, they can't be a Pittsburgh company. Yeah, no, no, I, I yeah, that. you're exactly right. I, I just wanted to set it up for whenever you do come to visit. We'll we'll get a training session in. Uh, I just want to set that up. Like it's, hey, we're not we're not going to work on speed and stuff. Whenever you're in there, we're gonna be we're gonna be pushing some weight. So just want to lay the lay I'll the do foundation. Both. I'll do my best. <laughs> 
I love it, man. Thanks again right. so much for coming on. We'll get you back on another time. I mean, down the line. I got one be, last be really question cool. for him. One yeah, last yeah, question. It might be the toughest one. And what is your identity? When you pass away, what do you want to be remembered as? I don't care if I'm remembered. Um, I care of the impact that's created and the ripple that's created. So if my name's never brought back into life, but it's impacting well beyond my time gone, that's all that matters. Because my judgment day is not here. My judgment day is on the other side. So my reality is if I can create a ripple and I can empower as many people as possible, whether right, wrong, or different, some are going to be completely like, here, take this. And I, and I expect nothing back. Some will be where it's you know, really thought through, but like the impact is the identity through who I can, you know, empower and love and serve. So they go do the same thing. So that ripple just keeps going down the line. So that would be my identity is serve, love and care until I ain't there. I love that. I absolutely love that. Thanks so much for coming on. Like Tim said, we're huge fans. Uh, Really, really just genuinely appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. God bless you guys. Thank you guys so much for listening in. We really hope you enjoyed the podcast. Make sure to like, rate, subscribe. Also, follow us on social media at Identity Impact. Talk to you guys next time. Remember that in everything you do, you're born to make an impact. Your identity is deeper than your gameplay, so you should treat every single day like it's game day. Cause all the worship stays set for you to shine. Block out any other thoughts that tell you otherwise. Intrinsic value, you're created with a grand design. That means your humanity cannot be minimized. And these are all facts. There's way more to you than just scores and stats. And when you need a reminder of that, tapping with identity impact. Yeah.